Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in my series on the church. In this podcast series, I want to share with you what I've learned about the church's past, the present state of the church versus the world, and the God-directed vision for the future of the church. Ultimately, we need to remember the church belongs to God, and God has chosen to use us, human beings, his crowning creation whom he declared upon creating us as very good and made in his image, to use his body, the church, as a method to declare the gospel to all the world. Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians that marriage and the church have something in common. He explains that the union of a man and a woman in marriage is a mystery because it conceals, as in a parable, a truth about Christ and the church. This is so incredible. The divine reality hidden in the metaphor of marriage is that God ordained a permanent union between his son and the church. And human marriage is sort of this earthly image of this divine plan. As God willed for Christ and the church to become one body, and Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He also willed for marriage to reflect this pattern, that the husband and the wife become one flesh. And this was probably a bit confusing to Paul's audience, but when you meditate on this, oh my gosh, it's amazing. I actually read this Bible passage at a beautiful God-filled wedding a few weeks ago, and it really caused me to ponder the intimacy of not only the gift of marriage, but that God desires, metaphorically speaking, to share that same kind of intimacy with us as the church. That's beautiful and super humbling at the same time, that God wants us truly desires us, warts and all, to have the closeness and intimacy represented in our earthly marriage bond. Our earthly marriage is a metaphor for this eternal bond God wants to have with his church, which is all of us as believers in Christ. But yes, this metaphor is also confusing because of sin. It's sometimes difficult for us to understand the perfection of the church and God and us when we acknowledge that man and women's relationship is broken because of sin. But I still want you to hold on to this image as we talk about the church, its design, and its role. The initial design was perfect, even if our execution is marred by sin and rebellion. In our last podcast, we reviewed 
the origin of the church. Christianity, and consequently the church, began as a movement within Judaism. Remember, Jesus and his early followers were all Jewish, and therefore much of the earliest proclamation of the gospel actually took place in Jewish synagogues. But by the end of the first century, the church had largely separated from the synagogue, and so they went their own way. And these early believers didn't have church buildings to meet in, so they met mostly in homes. The first buildings actually didn't start to appear until around the 200s. Early Jewish Christians referred to themselves as the way, possibly coming from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says, prepare the way of the Lord. We learned that the role of the early church was not only to share the good news of Jesus, but to create a sense of a loving community, to educate its members, to encourage a strong work ethic, and to treat everyone, regardless of race, cultural background, age, socioeconomic status, sex, Jew or pagan, all were considered beloved children of God. The church taught the value of all human life. As we learned, it can be said that the very principles of our entire Western civilization really started with Jesus and the church. Recall that we learned that the teachings of the early church actually changed the way people acted towards one another within the community. Yes, we know the Roman Empire was the most advanced civilization in the world at the time, but most people didn't live well. Most lived in poverty. And because of this, there was great inequality between the haves and the have-nots. And there was no motivation for those that had to share with those who had little. Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest was alive and well. The early church, described in the book of Acts and the Bible, made it a practice of looking after widows and orphans and the crippled and the mentally ill and the poor and those who society said were unable to care for themselves and earn a living. Paul tells us that to be a follower of Christ, all were welcome. No distinction between Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, or free. The church model welcomed everyone and considered everyone on equal footing for their ability to contribute to the greater good. And this is so important, and I want you to remember this, because as we discuss the role of the church today in the future, this is a very important concept, so I'm going to repeat it. The early church considered everyone on equal footing for their ability to contribute to the greater good. Also, early church was not in the business of handing things out when it wasn't warranted. For example, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that widows would receive money from the church. This is really interesting. Paul talks about this in his letter to Timothy. I'm looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5, and Paul talks about the responsibility of not only the church, but of the individual families 
to care for widows. Now, as I read through this, pay attention to the importance placed on individual accountability, the importance of the family unit, and accepting responsibility as followers of Christ. According to Paul, a widow who received financial and material support from the church had to meet certain requirements. Paul taught the church to be good stewards with their resources and not to be handing out freebies willy-nilly. Paul said that a widow had to be truly in need and completely alone in the world. Listen to this from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Paul taught the early church to be responsible with their resources and for families to also be responsible with their resources and for followers of Christ to act like followers of Christ. In the early church, there was less of a focus on handouts and more of a focus on hand-ups. Paul said that it was the duty and obligation of families to care for their aging and needy family members. Paul saw this as a privilege and opportunity for families to put their faith into action by giving back love and support to their parents and their grandparents, and especially to widows. Now, this would have been such a visual example of what it meant to be a Christian because it was vastly different from the way that widows were treated in the Roman world. But there's more. Paul gives further qualifications for widows to receive help from the church. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Hmm. Now, the purpose in me outlining the treatment of widows, for example, in the early church, brings me to the subject of this second installation of this church podcast series. Much has been written about how the church got off track throughout the ages during the Crusades, the Inquisition, the tactics used by some missionaries and corruption and sexual abuse in the church. Much less has been emphasized about the good that the church has done throughout the ages. And I hope you're starting to see that the early church advocated selfless, sacrificial love of thy neighbor, which really set the tone for our Western school of thought and laid the groundwork for our modern capitalist society. Now, I'm reading a couple of books that I will quote throughout this podcast. The first book I'm going to quote from is written by Timothy Keller, and it's called Every Good Endeavor. He describes the role of the church this way. The Christian worldview has been foundational in contributions to 
the rise of modern technology because of the Christian focus on education of the masses. The democratic ethos, which is the backbone of capitalism, has its roots in the church. The idea of inherent human freedom and worth as the basis for economic freedom and the development of markets is due in great part to the cultural changes made by the church. The ideas of modern science owe their proliferation because of the church. Okay, but it seems that over the years, we've been falling away from these Judeo-Christian values. We've lost our way as a church and as a society. Now, in this podcast, I want to focus our attention on what is happening in the Western world today. And in our final podcast in this series, we'll then discuss what role the church can play in bringing people back to Christ. First, I'm going to use some terms that might be a little unfamiliar to you. I'm going to talk about something called world views. And this will aid in your understanding of the importance of the church today, as well as in the future. Your worldview is your master narrative. It becomes the lens through which you see and interpret the world around you. So again, from this book, Every Good Endeavor, Timothy Keller has really identified three major questions that everyone at some point asks through the framework of whatever their worldview is. Questions are, what should human life in the world be like? What knocked it off balance? And what can be done to make it right again? Okay, so what does it mean for the church to have a Christian worldview? And quite frankly, what does it matter? Well, since the beginning of time, man has sought to make sense of his world, right? So probably initially he did this by, let's say, looking up at the heavens and believing certain things about the moon and the stars and his relationship to them. And he made up stories about the world as he saw it to try to help him understand what he was seeing and experiencing. The worldview that you develop matters because it shapes everything that you see, do, feel, and expect from the world around you. For example, and this again is quoting the author Timothy Keller, if you get the story of the world wrong, if your worldview is wrong, for example, you see life as mainly about self-actualization and self-fulfillment rather than the love of God, you'll get your life responses wrong. As I said, Your worldview tells you three things. How life should be, why it isn't like this, and then it gives you a proposed solution that puts your life back on track. For example, for the ancient pagans, how life should be was survival of the fittest, strong live, weak die. Why it always wasn't like this was explained by displeasing the gods. It got off track because the gods were angry and not pleased with something you did. 
The way to get it back on track was to figure out what would make the gods happy and then do this thing. This, of course, was a never-ending battle because the gods were whimsical, difficult to predict, and please. What had worked one time, like sacrificing a bull or a pigeon or a goat, now didn't work. So you had to figure out a different strategy to please the gods, like child sacrifice or sacrificing a virgin. Therefore, in this worldview, the rules kept changing. The church worldview, the Christian worldview, was vastly different from the pagan worldview because it wasn't subject to the capricious nature of a pagan god. It didn't view the world as the problem or the gods as the problem or the weakness of people as the problem. The church worldview, well, it was based on the unwarranted mercy and love of God, the creator, and the servant heart of God's son, who was without sin, who died a terrible death on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins. The church worldview saw creation as neither the cause or the solution of the problem. The church worldview saw sin as the problem. The church taught that the Bible is one continuous narrative that started with the amazing and perfect creation created by God. It then describes man's desire to learn not from God, our loving creator, but to learn from ourselves, the nature of good and evil. This is called the rebellion. This is sin. We turn our back on God and the perfect relationship that we had with him and with creation. Since that time in the garden, described in chapter 3 of Genesis, the church worldview using the Bible explained that man has been a rebellion against God. God's greatest desire has been to restore our relationship with him. So he sent his son to earth to redeem us and bring us back in a right relationship with God. His son, Jesus, though without sin, perfect in every way, lived life not as a king, but as a humble servant, died a terrible death on the cross, or the forgiveness of all of our sins. The church worldview then tells us that Jesus then gave instructions to us as the church to carry this message of redemption and forgiveness to the ends of the earth. This is now the part of the biblical narrative that we're living in. We often refer to this as the church age. This is why the church is so extremely important. God has chosen us to be his ambassadors, and he's asking us to bring all of the world the good news of forgiveness and eternal salvation. He's tasking the church with the job of letting the world know that one day Christ will return to earth and will restore all things to their former glory, and he will judge the living and the dead. At Christ's return, all creation will be restored because all creation was messed up because of our sin. Now, during the rest of this podcast, I'll explain how this church worldview 
is really different from the worldview that's growing in popularity today. With our Christian worldview, the church knows things are not as they should be. This is really important as we look at the role of the church versus the other worldviews. So keep this in mind. The plan was God's perfect world. The problem was our sinful nature and rebellion. The reason things are not as they should be is because of sin. We have no one to blame for this sin except ourselves because we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. The solution is redemption and restoration through Christ. See how the Christian church worldview answers those three questions? What should human life be like? What knocked it off balance? What can be done to make it right again? Okay, so we know the extreme good that the church has done for the world throughout the ages. But now is perhaps the church's most important hour. Now is the time when we need to live, breathe, walk, talk, and share in every aspect of our lives this Christian worldview. Christianity through the ages has, for the most part, produced a civilization that upholds the principles of justice, right? It allows us to critique and often correct things that aren't right because of our Judeo-Christian worldview of loving the Lord our God, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and that we are beloved children of God made in the image of God. The Bible is a comprehensive worldview that defines and shapes all aspects of reality and human existence. The Christian worldview, as we've said, has been responsible for shaping the life of the West for centuries, giving generations of men and women their sense of godly identity and purpose. Honestly, whether they were Christians or not, just a quick example. Before the Reformation, Northern Europe was as poor as some nations in Africa today. Then they received access to the Bible, and as they embraced these Christian worldview, they understood reality and their own identity and purpose. And because of this sense of self worth being made in the image of God, it lifted them out of poverty, allowed them to build free and prosperous nations. Remember this. As we look at some competing worldviews, it's important to ask this rhetorical question. So I'm going to quote the author Scott David Allen from another really highly recommended book called Social Justice is not biblical justice. And he asked this question. Are we more interested in wealth disparities and income redistribution or in doing what has been proven to be effective and actually empowering people to rise from poverty, which is sharing the truth of the gospel? Unlike other worldviews, the church worldview is based on truth. Oh boy, has that word been thrown around. Truth is not relative. 
It's not based on personal experience. Truth is indisputable. The Christian worldview, through the words of the Bible, define words like truth, love, justice, equality. We as the church are called to define these words in the truth of the Bible. We as the church then need to challenge opposing worldviews. What opposing worldviews are there? Okay, you've probably heard some of the buzzwords. Social justice, critical race theory, oppression. How did these worldviews start? How are they contrary to the church worldview? Well, human nature has a tendency to believe things that are not true. Did you know that? Yeah, we as human beings have a pretty awesome imagination. Truth corresponds to reality. But what if something gets it off kilter? Lies can actually become like muscle memory. We can not only believe things that are not true, but they can actually become our reality. I know. This is the danger of non-Christian worldviews. And the enemy, guys, is really at work here. Here's an example. People will experience a lie and then live in that lie until it becomes their truth. You may have heard the saying that we become the narrative that we believe. So, for example, if you've been mistreated by a person or a, a small group of people, you may start to believe that this entire group of people is bad. And after a while, your behavior and your belief system, your lens, your worldview may be so altered that in some way, this actually does become true for you because you might become so negative and antagonistic or so timid and ashamed around this particular group that what you believe about yourself in this group almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now contrast this with the belief that regardless of my circumstances, I am a beloved child of God made in God's image. That's the Christian worldview narrative. And how does that make you think, act, feel? Loved and forgiven, right? Remember, a worldview shapes how we think and act. One way to think about it is a worldview is like roots of a tree. Now, you can't see the roots, right? But you know they're there because the roots then determine the fruit that'll grow. So how do you recognize false worldviews? Jesus said in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Hmm. Look around you. What are the fruits of some of the worldviews we see today? I am oppressed. I am a victim. 
I'm not worthy to earn a living. I've been cheated. I am judged by the color of my skin. Enmity, hostility, entitlement, victimhood. Make no mistake, these worldviews are honestly directed by the enemy. Satan is the father of lies. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and it will set you free. But know that in order to recognize a fake worldview, you have to know what the real thing looks like. And in order for us to recognize the danger in opposing worldviews, we as the church need to educate and live out what it means to have a Christian worldview, which means we need to know the Word of God. So as I said, I'm reading a book called Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice by Scott David Allen. It describes how the heck we got to where we are today. Quote, some of the opposing worldviews today started in the 1700s and have morphed into a more modern Marxist ideology that have resulted in destructive paternalism and guilt on one side of the aisle and damaging dependency and entitlement on the other side. The Marxist ideology, which has morphed into critical race theory worldview, doesn't see certain groups of people as fully human. Think about that. They don't view them as beloved children of God created in his image with dignity, responsibility, and the capacity to create new wealth and opportunities. They view them as victims. This worldview is based on a belief that evil and injustice are products not of our sin and rebellion, but of dominant groups who, again, I'm going to quote him, create systems and structures which marginalize others and promote their own interests. As we've seen, this worldview can then conversely be used to marginalize and actually dehumanize people who find themselves in what is considered the dominant cultural group, which right now, can you guess, white males who are heterosexuals. The worldview prevalent today sees this lack of social justice as the reason for the world problems, not our sinful nature. And they have a word for this. It's called oppression. And we have spent time understanding the church worldview. So let's just take a minute to understand this critical race theory or oppression worldview. Again, a worldview colors everything that you see and do. It's your lens. So the oppression worldview believes that evil doesn't exist or originate in the heart. They don't have a doctrine of the fall of humanity or even a concept of human depravity. But instead, and this is important, they believe evil is sourced outside of man, that it's in society, in social structures, in systems, institutions, laws, cultural norms that 
then perpetrate inequalities of one group at the expense of another group. So in this worldview, all are not created equal. Instead, with this worldview, groups are pitted against one another for a struggle for power. The predominant group to blame, as I said right now, is white heterosexual men. And so they've been blamed for setting up these societal systems that have placed them at an advantage to the expense of everyone else. And then names are thrown out, white supremacy, toxic masculinity, patriarchy. But also uh, some blame the church's worldview on sexuality as the reason for society's ills. Okay, so what are some potential problems with this worldview versus the church worldview? The oppression worldview seems a bit divisive, doesn't it? In this worldview, all are either oppressor or oppressed. This is important. The individual is no longer valued. Your value comes from the group you belong to. So if you happen to belong to more than one oppressed group, well, winner, winner, chicken dinner, you hit the jackpot. This is actually called intersectionality. If you belong to more than one group, let's say, for example, a black female lesbian, uh, the more boxes you can check, the more your experiences of oppression color your sense of truth, and so you win the prize for being the most oppressed of the oppressed. So let's just think for a minute. Do we have a time in our history where we dehumanize people by groups, where we lumped all people of one group against another group? Hmm, let me think. Oh, yeah. Jews in Nazi Germany, capitalists in Russia, ethnic groups in Rwanda, Huh. We have a lot of work to do as the church. Join me in my next podcast as we will walk together through our great co-mission, co-together. This mission is that we as a church need to walk together, not in fear, but in faith. For we're the church and God is our king. I actually want to end this podcast with a powerful speech from an amazing Christian leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is the very end of his speech, 1963. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh 
shall see it together. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Have a blessed day.